don't we open our Bibles together to 2 Kings chapter 6 as you're having a seat? Last time we didn't quite get out of chapter 6 together, we went down as far as verse 23, and we saw last time that Elisha uh, encouraged the king of Israel to be gracious uh, to uh, particularly the people of Syria, uh, and yet it seems that though that worked for a time to make them a little bit more peaceable, uh, they didn't attack and raid Israel as much in light of that. Uh, it does seem to indicate that after a short period of time, they came back again and kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, really how the function works in the spiritual realm with our spiritual battles. Uh, the devil comes and he attacks and he hassles us for a time. And the Bible says that if we submit to God and resist the devil, that he'll flee from us. And of course, we see Jesus overcoming the temptations of the devil and his humanity there. But yet it tells us in the Gospels that even after Jesus overcame the devil and his three temptations, it says that Satan or the devil left him until an opportune time. In other words, uh, he returned, he came back, the battles, the assaults continued once again. And for that reason, that's why the Bible tells us that we're to be sober and vigilant, that we have an adversary who's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And there will always be a source of spiritual conflict that will continuously go on in our lives. Even as in a course of a war, uh, there are many battles, you know, enemies retreat and then they regroup and then they come back and launch attacks and assaults. Uh, our spiritual enemy uh, seems to do the same. And a lot of times that's because he wants to try and catch us off guard in different ways and sometimes he's patient uh, he'll allow us to get a little secure that's why the bible cautions us as well that when we think we stand that's when we need to take heed lest we fall because the devil would more than gladly patiently uh, wait me out almost like a boxer take me through a few rounds let me gas myself out and be tired and just wait till i drop my guard and one time and that's you know all it takes to just drop us and uh, really give us a good setback in our lives well uh, the Syrians have retreated for a time it says the bands of the Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel verse 23 but then chapter uh, 6 verse 24 the next verse says and it happened after this that is after a time of cessation from their raids and their attacks that Ben-Hadad king of Syria gathered all his army and they went up and they besieged Samaria. Again, Samaria, remember, was the capital city of Israel. So he now lays siege to the capital city of Israel. Uh, and really, this was a very common practice in ancient warfare where they would lay siege to a city. And the purpose of laying siege to a city really was a drawn out long process uh, that didn't involve a lot of conflict uh, it minimized uh, casualties and wounds and loss of resources and even loss of lives because you basically would just sort of surround the city and lay siege against it and kind of really just create uh, a blockade so that people could not go in and out of the city. And so those who were inside were sort of forced and kept uh, to remain in the city and you would just gradually wait them out until they utilized all of their resources, their, their food supplies, their ability to have fresh drinking water and you would gradually just slowly kind of weaken them and starve them out and cause them to just come to a place where hopefully then they would ultimately just 
sort of capitulate and just surrender because they were so weak they just couldn't resist things any longer. And so this is what happens here. Ben-Hadad comes, it says he lays siege to Samaria, he's besieging the city, and verse 25 says, there was a great famine in Samaria. Now, that's we're going to see an understatement. That word great should almost be highlighted, circled, emphasized, because this famine was not the result of natural circumstances. In other words, sometimes a famine would come because there'd be a drought in the land and maybe the crops wouldn't produce. That's not what this is from. This famine is the result of a lengthy siege where the people have run out of food, uh, they no longer have adequate supplies, and they're beginning to have starvation set in among the people within the city to a great degree. So there's a great famine in all of the city of Samaria, and indeed they besieged it, notice, verse 25, until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and one-fourth of a cab of dove droppings, and that is what it is, ill, was sold for five shekels of silver. So, so bad did things become during this siege, so bad was the famine and the starvation inside the walls of the city of Samaria. Literally, the people begin to, not only as Jews, begin to partake of things that were unclean according to Mosaic law, but on top of that, notice it says, so bad were things that people were paying 80 shekels of silver just for the head of a donkey. Now, it's bad to me if you're eating a donkey, eating the head of a donkey sounds really gross. I mean, what can you do with the head of a donkey? I mean, get a hold of it, boil it for some stew, something like that. And they're paying 80 shekels of silver. That's an exorbitant amount for something that is very unpleasant to eat and so bad were things actually becoming that literally it says as well that a cab, a very small measure of dove droppings is what you could get for five shekels of silver. Uh, so these are, the indication here, very desperate times. I mean, people are starving, they are struggling, and again, take notice, 80 shekels of silver for a donkey said, you can't eat silver. You can't eat precious metal. So you can have all the money you want. If you don't have food, you're not going to make it. People were willing to pay 80 shekels of silver for a donkey's head, five shekels of silver for a little bit of dove droppings. That's how bad things were at this time, desperate, desperate conditions because of the enemy's siege against them. Verse 26, it says, then as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, so the king of Israel, this is Jehoram here. Again, one of the ungodly kings that existed, he did not serve God. And a lot of these conditions in the, the land of Israel and the country were a direct result of the ungodly leadership coming from the top down. Again, the Bible says righteousness exalts a nation and sin is a reproach to any people. Uh, and as we're coming up towards another election season, listen, this is why it is important for us to vote. Uh, because the reality is, this is why it's important to vote uh, with a sense of morality and a sense of conviction and, and understanding where do people stand morally and what will be their decisions as they make d decisions and legislate and provide rulership and governance in different capacities because the Bible tells us that righteousness is what exalts a nation and sin becomes a reproach 
to any people or to any nation. So when you have those who are in places of leadership uh, governing in different capacities and they are immoral, they are ungodly, and they don't care what God thinks about their decisions or how they administrate or how they govern and they legislate and promote things from their positions of power that are ungodly and unrighteous, uh, not only is that not helpful, it actually becomes harmful. It deteriorates a society. Uh, it brings about the displeasure of God and it causes God to uh, be in a place where he retracts his favor and many times allows us to experience some of the consequences of our own wrongdoings uh, against him and against his way. So Jehoram was such a king and he's passing by now on this wall. He's walking around this ungodly king and a woman cried out to him that day, verse 26, saying, help my Lord, O king. And verse 27, he said to her, if the Lord does not help you, where can I find help for you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? In other words, he's saying, look, I'm the king of Israel. I don't even have anything in my wine press. I don't even have anything in my own threshing floor. Do you think that I have something that somehow I can help you? Now, look, it's pretty bad. Right? It's pretty bad when your top leader, your top governing ruler in your nation has nothing in the pantry. You know times are bad. That's another clear indication. And the king here, as he's walking around surveying the situation, the desperate straits that the people were in, this woman cries out to him this day asking for his intervention and help. And all he's able to say to her is, look, I have nothing. In verse 27, he says, if the Lord does not help you, where can I find help from you? So the king indicates that even as the most powerful man in the land, that still he could not resolve the problem that this woman had. Even though he had all the power and anyone could possibly have resources and power to do something to fix or resolve a problem, this was the king. And yet the king is saying, that problem is beyond my capacity to solve. I can't resolve your problem. Even as the king, I don't have the ability to solve that problem or come up with a solution. And you know what? Sometimes... Certain problems that exist, whether it's in a society or whether it's maybe in a family or even in your personal life, sometimes we face problems, listen, that not even the king or the highest ranking person or the most wealthy person or the you know, person with the greatest potential to fix a problem, they can't even solve that kind of problem for us. You know, the Bible tells us in Psalm 108, that the psalmist prays, God, give us help from trouble for the help of man is useless. And sometimes that is exactly 100% true. Sometimes given the situation, the magnitude of what needs to be done to fix the problem, the, the solution that's required to make this survivable or you know, for this to be dealt with or somehow the problem to be fixed or resolved, the help of any man, it's just useless. Just no man has the ability to come up with a solution for that. No person can solve that problem. The only one who can help is God. The only one who we can look to. And that's why in times like that, we need to be willing to look to the Lord. And here it's almost as if the king rather sarcastically, but yet somewhat correctly says, if the Lord doesn't help you, he says, uh, where can I find help from you? I can't help you. My help is useless, even as a king. But what is true, and we'll see in the story, is the Lord could help. 
The Lord is still able to help. Ultimately, we'll see God actually brings a resolve to what seemed like an impossible problem here because the Bible tells us that there is nothing too hard for the Lord and that what is impossible with man is not something that's impossible with God. All things, the Bible tells us, are possible with God. Uh, the Bible says you know, nothing's too hard for them. So uh, sometimes that's where we need to realize. Sometimes it takes even us, I think, maybe going to a place personally, or sometimes maybe going to a place as a family, or maybe going to a place as a nation, where we realize the help of man is useless. No man is going to solve the problems in this nation. No, no person, no human being is going to solve the problem in our family. It's, it's just, it would be useless. They just wouldn't have, the, and nobody can solve this problem I'm dealing with. And so it forces us to genuinely look to the Lord in ways maybe like perhaps we never have before and see God work in a situation. So verse 28, this is notice what's going on. This is the king said to her, what is troubling you? So he could tell something was bothering her. She was agitated about something. And she answered, this woman said to me, give your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And I said to her on the next day, give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. So take notice. There's a clearer indication how desperate times have become. Literally, not only are you seeing the evidence of cannibalism happening because of the starvation being so severe at this time among the people, but almost perhaps to the worst degree of cannibalism, you have mothers, mothers eating their own children. I mean, that's an indication of severity. That, that, that should look at, 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 you know, as we look at it, that should repulse us. The story is not the slightest bit humorous. It is tragic. It's absolutely tragic what's going on there. That is how severe, how hard times have become that they would resort to such a thing to survive. And, you know, you read a story like that, and one thing certainly it indicates is it goes to show you the, the capacity of humanity, that what we are capable to do when we become utterly desperate as human beings. You know, how desperate we can become as human beings and what we can do. Now, what's interesting is God spoke all the way back in Deuteronomy 28, indicating that these things were actually going to come to pass. And we see multiple times throughout history in the nation of Israel when times got so severe, this happened. Let me read to you from Deuteronomy 28. These are the words of the Lord predicting these very days that we're now reading about in 2 Kings 6. God said in Deuteronomy 28, they will besiege you at your gates until your high and fortified walls in which you trust come down throughout all your land and they will besiege you at your gates throughout all the land which the Lord your God has given you. You shall eat the fruit of your own body the flesh of your sons and your daughters whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege in desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you. The sensitive and very refined man among you will be hostile toward his brother, toward the wife of his bosom and toward the rest of his children whom he leaves behind so that he will not give any of them the flesh of his children he will eat because he has nothing left in the siege and desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you at all your gates. It says the tender and delicate woman, that is not only the woman, but the, the most delicate, dainty, you know, 
feminine, sweet-spirited woman, is what God's saying, the most delicate and tender woman among you who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground because of her delicateness and sensitivity. She will refuse to the husband of her bosom and to her son and her daughter her placenta, which comes out from between her feet and her children whom she bears, for she will eat them secretly for lack of everything in the siege and desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you at all your gates. God spoke in advance saying that the rebellion of people against him, that his people turning away from him and just disregarding God rather kind of casually, well, we're just going to do what's right in our own eyes and we don't need to honor God's ways or follow God's will and and we're going to do what we please and live the way that we want, not realizing that the compounding effect of that over time in a life, in a family, in a society, in a nation would continue to multiply to levels of greater and greater depravity and more vulnerability to the enemy controlling them and sieging them and controlling them and sieging them to where things would get so desperate, so horrible that literally the Bible described what would take place and now here, one of a few occasions in history we see it coming to pass where this woman says to the king not, you know, I'm so grieved I can't believe I actually boiled and ate my child. What she's complaining about is she's mad because now this woman won't follow through and boil her child because she wants a meal the next day. I mean, that, that just goes to, to indicate to us the reality of, you know, sometimes we think that, you know, sin is no big deal and compromises are no big deal. Listen, we have no idea where that little compromise may ultimately end up. I mean, who would have ever thought that these kind of things would happen in a society? I mean, really, I mean, we would look at that, come on, I mean, that is just, who would have ever thought that? But, but sin happens incrementally and darkness sets in and desperation sets in and the world starts falling apart and the bottom stops dropping out and the enemy just pushes humanity to a place of such utter depravity and disgrace and, and defilement of their own lives that I mean such a sad tragic thing here she's saying this woman she's you know, not giving her son. She promised that we could boil her son and now she's hidden him away and she's not surrendering him over for our next meal. Well, verse 30 says, now it happened when the king heard the words of the woman that he tore his clothes. That was a a Hebrew way of expressing deep grief. They would rend their garments as a picture of like, my heart is torn out of my chest. The idea is they tear their clothes as he passed by on the wall and the people looked and took notice that underneath he had sackcloth on his body. So the king was uh, somewhat just, you know, in a sense of, of mourning and grief over the conditions that were going on. And he said, look what he says, verse 31, God do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. Now you could tell where the king's heart is. It's certainly not repentant. Because instead of the king saying, I can't believe that I've pushed the nation in this direction by my ungodly rulership and my own evil ways, uh, and, and what I ought to do is you know, humble myself and pray and call the nation to humility and fasting and prayer and repentance, instead, he says, it's that man of God's fault. He's probably the one that told God what we're doing. That Elisha, I, you know, it's those righteous people. They're always the ones causing the problem. 
And all of this, if, if it wasn't for these people like Elijah and Elisha, and they're, you know, they're probably in contact with God, and they're ratting us out and telling God what we're doing, and, and all of a sudden here, all of his anger wells up, and look what it's directed towards. It's directed towards the man of God. You know, the anger of, of the own calamity that's been created by personal sin is now manifesting itself basically in a mindset where the king, again, those in political places of power, their mindset is the problem with things in society is those who are righteous. It's the righteous people. And somehow he comes up with this distorted, off-the-wall idea that the problem is people like Elisha, those who are speaking the word of God, those who are teaching people the ways of the Lord. And he, he basically says, if his head remains on him till the end of the day, what's he saying? He's saying, look, what we need to do to start solving this problem is we need to eliminate godly people. If we eliminate the godly and we eliminate the voice of God and we eliminate the righteous, then we can begin to get things back on track. That's basically what he's saying. I need to take off his head. I need to eliminate. And doesn't that sound awfully familiar? I mean, it is absolutely shocking that a lot of times it does seem in the culture that there is almost this mindset that those who are the problem in our country are those who are Bible-believing, fundamental Christians. Those who are wanting to be righteous or just stand up for what is righteous and moral, that somehow we're the enemy to the culture and that we're actually somehow contributing to and creating the problems that exist in our culture rather than being seen as the ones who are the salt and the light who are actually trying to keep back the decay and stop the country from going downhill in a moral landslide. So he says, that's it. We need to get rid of Elisha. Look what happens. Very interesting. Love God's protection of his servants. Verse 32, but Elisha was sitting in his house and the elders were sitting there with him. So notice the king stressed out, but Elisha, because he's in relationship with God, he's at peace because he has the peace of God in his life. He's sitting there with the elders, and the king sent a man ahead of him. But before that messenger came to Elisha, he said to the elders, do you see how this son of a murderer has sent someone to take away my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold him fast at the door. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? I mean, Elisha is, is just astonishingly in real connection with God. I mean, we've seen a couple of times already how God reveals things to him. God spoke to him, remember, about what Gehazi did. Though he wasn't there, God gave him a word of knowledge. Remember when Gehazi came back, we saw last time that he called out Gehazi for what he was doing. And he said, didn't my heart go with you when you went? And not only did he know what Gehazi did, he knew what Gehazi's desires and intentions were. He says, you're not just stealing stuff now. You're already thinking about the farm you're going to create and all the servants you're going to have and how rich and wealthy you're going to get. And here again, here's Elijah. He's sitting there. This death, uh, in a sense, uh, wish has just gone out from the king. And he puts out this you know, uh, messenger to go to the house of where Elisha was. They're ready to go and eliminate him and take off his head. And here's Elisha. He's sitting in the house with a group of elders, leaders in the land, just kind of sitting there. And I can almost envision, you know, here he is. He's just kind of, kind of talking and hanging out. And all of a sudden, I don't know if he kind of just kind of looks away from the conversation. Would you, could you believe that? That son of a murderer, just like Ahab, 
killed Naboth and his men. That son of a murderer is sending somebody over here right now to come take off my head. And, and, and he just receives a vision from the Lord of either what was going to happen or what was already happening in process. And he kind of calls out in front and he says, look, when he's coming, the king's going to be right behind him. So here's what I want you to do. As soon as they knock on the door, just pin his guys up against the door uh, and because and, his messenger, the king, is going to come walking right behind him. And again, just this amazing indication of here is someone who genuinely is hearing from the Lord. God's speaking to him. God's revealing things to him. He could not know these things humanly. This is divine revelation. This is a word of knowledge from an all-knowing God being imparted to Elisha in this situation here where basically God is giving him a vision or a revelation to show him something going on and that's about to happen. Why? Uh, For his welfare, for his benefit, not just so that he could host a conference and charge $99 and tell people all kinds of things that God tells him. That wasn't why. It was for a real reason. There was a need. God was working in this way by his spirit to protect his servant. He revealed something to him so that he could be ready and not caught off guard and end up losing his life. So again, just very amazing to see. You know, God help us. I think God's always speaking. Quite honestly, I, I think the problem's more on my end than it is God's end. I think God's always speaking. The problem is, is, is I'm perhaps not always tuning in the right frequency. I'm not always paying attention to what the Lord's trying to say or what the Lord's trying to show. You know, just like in this room tonight, there's sound going all through this room beyond my voice. There's music traveling all through this room. There's a little bit of jazz. There's a little bit of country, maybe some rap music. I don't know. But, but what we don't have is something to tune in the frequency. If you had something that could receive the frequency that's going to, then you would hear the sound that's passing through this room. And I think a lot of times the problem is that our receiver, our antenna, if you would, spiritually, is just not tuned in to the Lord the way it should be. And we need to be seeking the Lord to help us. Lord, help my antenna to be a little bit more tuned in. Help me to tune in the frequency of of your voice and what you want to say to me and what you want to show me. That I would be able to benefit in my life from you revealing things to me that I need to know for my welfare. Maybe it's to protect me from something that could harm me if, if I don't see what you're trying to show me in advance or something you want to tell me to give me insight to make the best decision to handle something. So Elisha, just really in tune with hearing from the Lord, he says, here he comes. When they come, pin him against the wall. In verse 33, while he was still talking with them, as he's telling them this, there comes the messenger coming down to him. And then the king sure enough, comes right through afterwards. And this is what the king had to say to Elisha. Verse 33, surely this calamity is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? So again, notice the king, rather sarcastic. You can tell he's kind of, he's bothered, he's irritated. He comes through the door. And again, this is so like so often, uh, even many of us to this day, Here's Jehoram, and what he's doing is he's blaming God for the situation. And he's saying, why should I have to look to God? This whole calamity and problem is God's fault anyway. Now, what's interesting to me is Jehoram had no interest in following God. He had no interest in God's involvement or God's help or seeking God to be involved in his life or in the nation. But yet, when everything falls apart, 
It's God's fault. And isn't that oftentimes what goes on? You know, people don't want to live for God. They don't want to serve God. They don't want God's involvement in their life. They don't want to submit to God or have God in any way be included in anything in their life. No involvement for God. But when things go wrong, then it's God's fault. Right? I mean, isn't that so true? We see that happen all the time. We've probably been guilty of it ourselves, and certainly we see it happen in our culture. And here, the king of Israel, this calamity is from the Lord, and this, so then he says sarcastically, so why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Why do I got to wait for him to solve this situation? This is all his fault. He caused the problem anyway. This is his issue. And probably the reason why King Jehoram is saying this, I believe, is most likely because Elisha, as the man of God, the prophet of God in that day, predominantly, he probably counseled the king, my personal belief, and in some way conveyed to the king and to his rulers, listen, we need to wait for the Lord a little longer. We need to wait for the Lord to intervene, to be merciful to us. We shouldn't try and resolve this and try and do something. We need to wait on the Lord and and the Lord's going to give us direction if we'll just wait on the Lord and seek him. But he says, well, why should I wait for any longer? He's saying, I've waited long enough. God didn't work in my timetable. I'm not waiting any longer. Why bother waiting any longer? Here's the tragedy. He misses it by a day. Because the very next verse of chapter 7, verse 1, is going to say, here's the word of the Lord tomorrow. The problem solved. And here he was at this moment saying, why should I wait for the Lord any longer? You know, sometimes, let's be honest, in all of our lives, we can find ourselves kind of with that same heart struggle a little bit, whether we created maybe our own little kind of calamity or catastrophe. Maybe we made some bad decisions and now we're dealing with some consequences and we get weary under that and kind of worn out and we're just, all right, Lord, I mean, I... I mean, I humbled myself and I'm trying to do what's right now and, and yet we're, we're kind of wrestling with the whole timetable of when God's going to maybe turn the tables for us or put the pieces back together. And, and then sometimes we, we can get a little stubborn like that. Well, why should I wait for the Lord any longer? I mean, I've waited long enough. Why should I wait any longer? Look, we need to be careful with that. Trust God's timetable. It's always good to wait for the Lord. It's always good to wait on the Lord's timetable. Everything's going to change in a day in this situation and in an incredible, powerful way. And I think we need to be careful. Sometimes we just get wearied and, you know, we feel like I've waited long enough and we kind of have that same heart. Why should I wait for the Lord? Because you always should wait for the Lord. It's good. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. It tells us in Psalm 27, wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. He'll strengthen your heart. Trust the Lord. Be patient. Wait on the Lord, know that he's able and his timetable and ways of working are always best. Well, chapter seven, verse one, here's Elisha's response. As I said, hear the word of the Lord. Here's the prophecy from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time, a sea of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, a very small amount. The idea is uh, like a sea of flour for about a buck. So, so now time is going to be incredibly better. Things are going to become very cheap as far as purchasing food, the exact opposite of the famine and desperate times they've been in. Two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. So God gives now a prophetic word promising to do what? To solve the problem. There's the promise of the Lord, large as the problem was, a promise that God was going to resolve the problem. 
It really becomes the answer to what King Jehoram said back in chapter 6 when he said, if the Lord doesn't help, where's help going to come from? Well, now the Lord's going to help. And the help of man might have been useless. The help of the king might have been useless. But now the Lord is going to turn the tables and have mercy upon his people in these desperate conditions. And he says, literally, what seems impossible, and it was, the conditions, we read how desperate they were, but he says, tomorrow, everything's going to change. Literally, tomorrow, I mean, that would almost be like, for example, you know, if I were to say to you something like, you know, the the Lord reveals something, thus says the word of the Lord, tomorrow, gas is going to be 12 cents a gallon at the pump, right? I mean, you, come on, 12... 12 says, yeah, yeah, tomorrow. Tomorrow, the Lord's going to do something that gas is going to be 12 cents a gallon. I mean, that would just be like, come on, that's impossible. How could, and this is kind of the idea here. They're in a famine. They're starving. They're eating dub droppings and donkey's heads and paying exorbitant price. They're, they're resorting to cannibalism in their, with their own children. And now the word of the Lord is tomorrow, everything's going to be back to normal. In fact, things are going to be cheap to buy food. There's going to be an abundance of food. You're going to enter into a time of surplus, a complete change, the promise of the Lord, everything will change tomorrow. And listen, here's the thing. The kind of God that we serve, God can change everything in a day. That is the kind of God that we serve. In a day, God can ch- Now, I know it seems impossible humanly, but in a day, God can change everything. And so this promise comes, but look what happens. Here's the unfortunate thing. Verse two, watch what happens. Humanity gets in the way. So an officer on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could this thing be? And he answered him, in fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat it. So he says, in his humanity, this officer there next to the king, he says, come on, that's not logical. That's just not, that's not even rational. And they even go so far as to say, God couldn't even do that. If the Lord opened the windows of heaven, how could that, even if the Lord opened the windows of heaven and dropped a shaft down from heaven to earth and just started funneling a bunch of barley and wheat, even if the Lord opened the windows of heaven and poured out, he says, everything he has in his heaven, could that possibly be? How could all that change by tomorrow? Again, questioning in unbelief. His human and reasoning is doing what? It's blocking faith. And we always have to remember, human reason can be one of the greatest counterparts to a life of faith, to believing and trusting God. And the Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. One of the first books I read as a Christian, and I don't remember much of the rest because I usually don't remember the title of books. I don't have very good reading comprehension. was called Faith Beyond Reason. That's all I needed to remember was the title because that's what the book was about. (laughs) Faith Beyond Reason. Because faith's not reasonable sometimes. And if I try and reason it out and think, how could God do that? I mean, I just, I just, I'm trying to think of ways that the Lord could do that. I mean, even if he, I mean, even if he opened the windows of heaven and he did, nah, even if he opened a window, no, that's just not possible. And see, sometimes that's the mistake. We try and reason it out. You know, well, let's see. Okay, if the Lord did this and this and then this and, maybe that could happen. And we try and logically 
deduce in our mind the exact way that God would do something. And usually, you know, how it works. God's going, I'm not even thinking about that way. I have a totally different idea. And even when we try and come up with some concept or idea, but our logic gets in our way. And we try and, because we can't figure it out with our mind, like this man, this officer, we think, oh, that's just not possible. And we have an evil heart of unbelief. And notice, Elisha says, the unfortunate thing is, because of your unbelief, now you're going to see it with your eyes, but you won't benefit from it personally. You're going to see God's work come to pass, but you're going to be robbed of being able to experience it for yourself. You're going to see it, but not benefit, he says. You won't eat of it. Verse 3, now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, not knowing about this conversation that had just happened, we kind of pan the camera over to these four lepers in this desperate condition. They say, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say we will enter the city, the famine is in the city and we shall die there. And if we sit here at the gate, they were typically isolated from the community. If we sit here, then we're going to die also. Now, therefore, come, let us surrender to the army of the Syrians. If they keep us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall only die. Well, that sounds encouraging, doesn't it? <laughs> Basically, what these four lepers are saying, look, our condition's desperate. Our, our, our health issue is terminal. We're starving like everybody else. And, and they don't know about all this that's just going on in this conversation. They're going to play into the story. God's always working in multiple places at the same time. They have no idea that God's superintending and working in their lives in the midst of this whole process. And one of them just gets an idea and he says, guys, like, why are we just sitting here till we die? I mean, think about it. If we sit here, we're just going to starve and die. If we go into the city, we're just going to starve and die. If we go and surrender to the Syrians, maybe they'll like have mercy and make us their slaves, but they'll at least feed us. And then maybe we'll live for a little while longer until our leprosy kills us. The idea, what do we have to lose? But why sit here and do nothing until we just die? Our situation is desperate. Our situation is hopeless. And they say, why just keep sitting here doing nothing at all? See, to do nothing at all would have just been a decision to fail. That's what doing nothing does. Sometimes I think that's a good word of the Lord for us to read once in a while. Why just sit there until you die? Why just keep sitting there? What do you have to lose? Get up and do something. Go try something. To, do, to choose to do nothing is basically to choose to give up. That's what to do nothing is. And so sometimes I think the Lord of the Lord, why just sit there? Get up and at least try something. Make an effort towards something because to just sit idle is nothing other really than just to kind of choose to give up and to fail and to die in the situation that you're in and never make it for sure. So they say, why sit here? So verse five, they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. And when they had come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one was there. They come to the camp of the Syrians and there's no Syrian army there. Verse six, for the Lord, look at this, had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses, the noise of a great army. So they said to one another, look, the king of Israel has hired against us, that is mercenaries, the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. Therefore, they arose and fled at twilight and they left the whole camp intact, their tents and horses and donkeys, and they fled for their lives. So here 
God's coordinating all these events again because he's got a plan he's working out. And it says that the Syrian army heard some sound. God made them hear a sound, it says, caused them to hear the sound of chariots and noises of horses. And they thought, oh my goodness, Israel has hired out all these mercenary armies to come and fight against us. So they are panic-stricken in terror. They don't even take their supplies. They just get up and they run for their lives and they leave all their supplies and all their resources behind and they go running off because God makes them hear something supernaturally and they think that something's going to come in and destroy them. And so these men come stumbling in. Here come these four lepers thinking, well, yeah, hey, Bob, I hope you're right about this. I mean, just we're going to die either way. But And here they come walking in and all of a sudden, hello, hello, hello. Where's all the army? Look at there's gold here and food and animals and, and, and there's all this stuff and all these supplies, these you know desperate men and lepers that are starving themselves come and they find everything intact. And verse 8 says, when the lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they went into one of the tent and they ate and drank. They started having a feast there. They carried from it silver and gold and clothing <laughs> and they went and they hid them. They, this, this is great. We're, we're going to die rich at least so often from our leprosy, but we're going to live well until then. And then they came back and they entered another tent and they carried from there also and they went and hid it. So they're just enjoying and accumulating all these resources, hiding things and storing it up. Four men take over a whole campsite of an Assyrian army of Assyrian army. But verse nine says, then they said to one another, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news and we remain silent. If we wait until morning light, some punishment will come upon us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. So as they're indulging the food and feeding themselves and gathering gold and silver and they're hiding stuff away and they're all excited about this great discovery and all the blessing that's coming into their lives, it seems conviction comes over their hearts and they say, you know, we're doing something that's not right here. We're enjoying the benefit of all this and kind of hoarding all of this for ourselves. And there are multitudes of people who know nothing of these resources. There are multitudes of people who are in desperate condition who need exactly what we're benefiting from. And we're keeping it all for ourselves and we're not sharing it with them. And so they say here, we are not doing right. If we keep doing this, they say, what if, what if some consequence or punishment comes upon us? They get kind of superstitious. They say, we should go and spread the news of this great opportunity and these resources that are available so others can benefit too. And again, of course, as you look at these things, such a beautiful picture, this beautiful analogy here in the Old Testament of salvation. And here are these lepers in a desperate condition and what do they have to lose and why sit here until we die? Well, I mean, I know I'm sinful and I know I'm going to go to hell, but I'm not sure if I want to get saved. Right? I mean, why would you sit there and die in your sin? So they take a chance and they say, let's humble ourselves. Let's, let's, what do we have to lose? Let's just humble ourselves. And they go and they experience the wealth and the, the, you know, the blessings and the benefit. Their need is met. They're experiencing the grace of God and provision. And, 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 and then they realize, wait a minute, we're experiencing this for ourselves, but we're not sharing this with others. Other people need to know about this. 
And I think sometimes as Christians, uh, I know I have been, we have all probably to some degree at times been guilty of kind of like these four lepers. We're enjoying what God's done for us and his grace in our lives and salvation, and yet we're holding it back and hoarding it and not sharing it with others. And really when we do that, we're not doing what's right. We're holding back the grace, the gospel message, the provision, and certainly as Christians, we can be guilty of doing that very same thing. So verse 10, they went and called to the gatekeepers and told them saying, we went to the Syrian camp and surprisingly no one was there, not a human sound, only horses and donkeys tied and the tents intact and the gatekeepers called out and they told it to the king's household. So a report comes in to the king from these four lepers and the king arose in the night and he said to his servants with great faith, no, the exact opposite, let me now tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry and therefore they've gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the field. This is just a trap. And when they come out of the city, we shall catch them alive and get into the city. So the king, again, disbelief, that can't be true. That's just too good to be true, right? You tell people the gospel, come on, that can't be true. I mean, there's got to be a little bit more to the gospel than that. And so in disbelief, he says, this is just a trap. That he's, again, he's logically having a hard time exercising faith to believe. And one of his servants, thankfully, he answered and said, please, let several men take five of the remaining horses which are left in the city. Look, they may either become like all the multitude of Israel that are left in it, or indeed, I say, they may become like all the multitude of Israel left from those who are consumed. So let us send them and see. What, what do we have to lose? Let's at least go check, king. Send out a few messengers. Let's see if this is true indeed so that we can benefit from our desperation and need. Verse 14, therefore they took two chariots, two horses. The king sent them in the direction of the Syrian army saying, go and see. And they went after them to the Jordan. Indeed, all the road was full of garments and weapons, which the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. So the messengers returned and told the king, and the people went out and plundered the tents of the Syrians. So a sea of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel. Notice the last phrase, according to the word of the Lord. In one day, God changed everything. Exactly what God's in one day, God said tomorrow. Come on, even if the windows of heaven. In one day, God said it. And God did it because what God promises, God has the power to perform. That's the difference between God and humanity. There have been times probably where certainly I've promised something and for some reason I didn't have the power and I wasn't able to perform and provide what I would have liked to and what I promised. But with God, that can't happen because God's not limited. So what God promises, he has the power to perform. God can change everything in a day. And according to the word of the Lord, God changed everything and food and abundance was available and the people are rushing out of their tents and plundering all the Syrian camp. And verse 17, now the king had appointed the officer on whose hand leaned to have charge of the gate. But the people, the guy that member had disbelief, trampled him in the gate. This was like, what's that? Day after Thanksgiving, Black Friday, is that right? You know, they open the doors and, and just, <laughs> this, that's what this is kind of like. You know, people are just, they open the gates of the city and people just flood in and this poor officer ends up being trampled in the gate and died just as the man of God had said who spoke when the king came down. So it happened just as the man of God had spoken to the king saying two seahs of barley for a shekel 
And a sea of fine flour for shekel shall be sold tomorrow about this time in the gate of Samaria. Then that officer had answered the man of God. Remember what he said? Now look, if the Lord would make the windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he had said, in fact, you shall see it with your eyes. And he did, but you shall not eat of it. And of course that happened. For the people trampled him in the gate and he died. So exactly as the word of the Lord said, things came to pass and notice unbelief robbed this man, this officer from experiencing God's best. You know, unbelief is like a thief, like the thief of unbelief, kind of like a, I think unbelief sometimes is kind of like a secret sniper. You know, and he just kind of hangs out and he tries to pick off the Lord's people and, and pick off people in their soul by, by just firing a dart of unbelief into our heart and into our mind, whether it's because we're trying to reason things out and figure it out in our own rational, logical thinking, or whether it's just because we're fearful or we just, you know, are, and again, unbelief is different than doubt. Doubt is I'm struggling. Unbelief is I'm making a choice not to believe because I just can't seem to figure. So therefore, I just, I can't believe it. Unbelief is a conscious decision. And so because of unbelief, notice this man is robbed of God's best. Unbelief ruins our potential to experience what God is offering and it harms us personally. This man lost his life. Unbelief led to his death. And look, this is exactly true as well from the perspective, again, of salvation uh, and what is true of the gospel. The writer of Hebrews describes that very reality when he says this in Hebrews 3 uh, and, and the beginning of chapter 4. He says, Beware lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Exhort one another today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. And then he says this toward the end of the chapter, to whom did he swear they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey. So we see they could not enter in, referring to Israel, because of unbelief. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Hebrews 3, the end and the beginning of chapter 4. Notice, the same people heard the gospel, those who believed upon it, it benefited them. They experienced forgiveness and the grace of God and the Holy Spirit coming into their life and spiritual conversion and eternal life because they believed upon the word of the Lord. They chose, even though they couldn't maybe understand everything, a person chooses to believe what's true about Jesus. They choose to believe the gospel message. People who aren't saved, the wages of their sin is death and because they choose not to believe, they don't enter in. But it's a choice and they end up losing their lives because sin brings death and then ultimately eternal death and it's because they choose not to believe. They choose and their unbelief robs them of experiencing the salvation that Jesus Christ is wanting to provide for them. Very fitting to exactly what happens in salvation. Before we close this evening, turn with me quickly to Mark chapter 9. And I just want to kind of 
bring you to this passage, I think, you know, fitting with what we're talking about. And Mark 9, there's just a great story here in regards to this concept of belief and unbelief and struggling through that in our humanity. Same kind of a thing. Mark 9, let me, let me just read beginning in verse 17 of Mark 9. It says, Then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought to you a son who has a mute spirit. He had a son who had a condition physically. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes at his teeth, and becomes rigid, some type of seizure type experience. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. The help of man was useless. I even came to your followers. Jesus, even your followers couldn't help me. Even your followers couldn't resolve this problem with my son. Jesus answered and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you and how long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. That's what you do when you have a problem that people can't solve. You bring it to Jesus. Then they brought it to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often he has thrown him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. So perhaps it was a potentially even you know, demonic spirit that was influencing, causing a health condition. We don't know, but certainly, again, very destructive. I mean, he would throw himself into the fire, throw himself into the water, almost drown when he would have these seizures and manifestations of these convulsions. But look at this, verse 22. The father in desperation says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Lord, this is beyond any ability of any person to solve. But if you can do anything, please have compassion on us. Help us. Jesus's words, please hear them. Maybe you need them for yourself. Verse 23, Jesus said, if you can believe, that's all. If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears running down his face, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That's what we need to do in those situations. We need to honestly, humbly say, listen, even if it's a struggle, to just say, Lord, I'm choosing to believe. I choose to believe. I choose to exercise faith. I choose to believe this can happen. So please just help my unbelief. Help my unbelief not to hinder me and to rob me of what you want in my life. Let's stand together.